May 23rd, 2020. Happy Memorial Day weekend, everybody. How many folks are you having over this year? Know what struck me is off ribs and pork shoulder, not on sale. What's up with that? You know what else I saw online? Let's uh, play prices right. Play prices right with me. One pound of Oscar Mayer bacon. How much do you think one pound of Oscar Mayer bacon was last night online? Do, 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 do. $10. Going to venture out and see if maybe there are some in-store deals. Shout out to Terry Black. I've got a smoker burning a hole in my pocket. Next week is the third week STL has been open. Fingers crossed, no spike as we get into that 17 to 20 day range. Lori Laughlin and Hubby pleaded guilty yesterday for paying $500,000 to get their two daughters into USC. Not Harvard, not Yale, USC, $500,000. I'm giving them jail just for being idiots with money. Jerry Sloan, look, I was not close friends with the Utah Jazz coach. I did manage a couple of all-sports radio stations in Salt Lake City back in the day of Stockton to Malone. I was at more than a few functions with him, and we interacted. We knew each other. Old school, not many more like him. 15 consecutive playoff appearances in Salt Lake City, of all places. Fourth winningest coach in NBA history. Most of those wins in Salt Lake City, of all places. Three things you should if you have not. First, uh, there's a doc. Paul Williams is still alive. It was made in 2011. No, Paul Williams is not the short guy from laughing. This is the guy who wrote some pretty famous songs, was like on Carson or Game Show every week for a decade. Every Green from Stars Born is the one he won the Oscar for. But he also, this is when you know you're cool. When you write the theme song to Love Boat and Rainbow Connection. Truth be told, might not have blown up in the HD world we live today, but he hit the 70s right in the sweet spot. Got into some abuse trouble, climbed out of that, and in 2009 started to be the president and chairman of the American Society of Composers. That's ASCAP for you and me. Think about what hasn't changed in music since 2009. Not mesmerizing, but it was captivating. The doc, Paul Williams, is still alive. Wingstop, have you tried it? Good wings? Don't try the fries. Trust me. I had garlic parmesan, mango jalapeno. I'm going to come back, try some other flavors. However, if you do, if you do, as they would in Good Morning Vietnam, do not over-order the phone. The guy who was taking my order was an idiot. And the third thing, have you heard the latest morning show on ESPN, Character and Smallwood? My guess is you have, and if you have not, you should. Longtime sports show host Randy Carricker is today's guest. Look, we've known each other for a while, but trust me, he's doing me a favor doing this. We talk Rams, Blues, growing up in Creve Corps, and what it was like to work for Robert Hyland and with Jack Butt at Camwex in its heyday. If you like this one, you might want to check out previous episodes with Vahe Gregorian, Dan O'Neill, or Rob Raines. I bet you'd also love the episode with Jackie Smith. This one's a treat, guys. St. Louis's favorite fan with a microphone, Randy Carricker. Go to Overtime, Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. And today we're going to sit down with co-host of the long-running morning show, Character and Smallwood. Randy, thanks for the time, man. Uh, David, great to be with you. Great to see you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's week three of the show. Week three of the show. And uh, yeah, Michelle Smallman and I took over, uh, 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 well, three, two and a half weeks ago. So it's, it's week three and things are going smoothly. I have never in my life until now had a job where I had to get up in the morning, where I had to have an alarm to get up in the morning. So that part of it is different, but it's fun and it'll be more fun once we have sports and we're reacting to what's happening in the world of sports. You've been in St. Louis forever. You've been an important player in St. Louis forever. You're always kind with your time. You're always there when people need you. Before we get started so that I don't forget, talk to me about every child's hope. Yeah, ECH is a group that I got in, involved with actually about 35 years ago because my mother-in-law worked there. And I've been the uh, chair of their golf tournament now for uh, more than a decade. And what ECH does, they're right near the corner of the Interbelt and St. Charles Rock Road. And they've got a full-service campus for kids from ages 2 to 18. And they're for the kids that are in the worst of situations, whether their parents are deceased or incarcerated, or the kids are neglected or abused. ECH takes them in. They've got shelter. They've got uh, beds for them. They've got clothing. They've got a school there. They've got entertainment. They've got psychological help. 
And it really is an amazing organization. And I'm so proud to be involved with them because especially now, there isn't an awful lot of help for homes like that from the government. So anything I can do to raise a few funds for them, I'm more than happy to do just to help out the kids. And they've had so many success success stories, Dave. When you look back at uh, the number of people that have spent six, seven, eight, nine, ten years at Every Child's Hope and that have gone to college, graduated from college, and become business successes, it really is heartening to see that happen. Every Child's Hope. All right, so Randy, born and raised in St. Louis, what did your mom and dad do? Uh, my dad was a uh, director of training at Psychological Associates. He tra- trained salespeople and uh, taught them how to effectively sell their products. And my mom was a, uh, a stay-at-home housewife. Any brothers or sisters? Uh, yeah, I have a brother and a couple of sisters. And uh, I have one sister that lives quite near me. She lives uh, right down the street. And we are still in touch a lot. And uh, my brother and my other sister are still in town. and. Uh, working hard and trying to to keep getting through this pandemic. And you were one of those guys, you kind of always knew that you wanted to get into sports broadcasting some way, shape, or form. Yeah, when I was about 10, I reached the conclusion that I wasn't going to be a professional athlete because I wasn't that great athletically. And I grew up, like a lot of kids in St. Louis, listening to Jack Buck do the Cardinal games and listening to people like Bill Wilkerson and Bob Costas do sports up the line. And I thought, That'd be pretty cool. That'd be a fun thing to do. And it's funny, I heard a story about a year and a half ago from a former vice principal, Don Hugo at Parkway North, who said that one of the history teachers came up to him while I was, I guess, a junior or senior in high school and said, what what, what am I going to do about this character kid? And Don said, what do you mean? And he said, well, all he does is sit, sit in the back of the room and talk sports, and I really don't know what to do. And Don said, don't worry about it. That's what he's going to do. Just let him do his thing and you'll be fine. So I I was glad that somebody when I was in high school saw that that I had a future in this business. Do you remember bookmobiles? Oh, yeah, definitely. They came to to my schools as a kid. And Uh, all I would do is I'd get the Gibson autobiography. I'd get the – remember they had books that used to only give you, like, the top ten rushers in the NFC and then the top ten rushers? I mean, those would be what I would do my book reports on. Oh, those were the best. Absolutely. Yeah. I would immediately go to the sports section and there was always a great book, a children's type of book that was about sports legends or like you say, sports lists. And I, I remember getting a book, The Saga of the St. Louis Blues. And this was in the, this might've been 1975. So the blues were like eight years old, but I loved that book because it told me all about Barkley Plager and Bob Plager and Gary Unger and Red Berenson. And obviously the Blues were still hot because they were people still remembered their first three trips to the finals in their first three years of existence. So I remember that book vividly. Gary Unger was on the cover of it with that flowing blonde hair. So in 1980, you graduate from Parkway North. You'll appreciate this. Let's go ahead and call Parkway North the Lindenwood of St. Louis High Schools. <laughs> yeah, uh, John Kelly graduated there in 1978. I was 80. Steve Savard was 1982. Andy Strickland was in the 90s. So we've had a lot of, uh, and it's kind of a strange thing, a lot of uh, broadcasters come out of Parkway North. I did graduate in 1980. It's amazing. We're on our 40th anniversary now. Our 40, 40th class reunion is this, is this summer. But in my senior year especially, I was with uh, DECA. I was with the Cooperative Education Program. So I would only go to school for half a day, and then I would leave to do my job, I worked at a gas station called Onyx. It was a self-service gas station on Olive. And the second half of my day was spent there. Well, in the second semester of my senior year, we had a gas shortage and the station closed. So I would get off school and I would go in and just sweep up and make sure that the station was clean. I would clean the windows and everything. And then after that, if it was a Cardinal Day game, I'm down at the Cardinal Day game or I'm out. Uh, doing something sports-wise. I I didn't really have a very productive uh, second half of my senior year of high school. Tell me you actually did get to attend a Super Jam. Oh, yeah. Well, I I was an usher. Uh, After I graduated from high school, I was an usher down at uh, Bush Stadium and at the arena. So when Super Jam was held at the old Bush Stadium, I was an usher there or a field guard. And yeah, I got to see uh, I think we had Michael Jackson in town for a Super Jam one time in the early 80s. And, I, yeah, I got to see a couple of Budweiser Super Jams is what they were. They were sponsored by Bud. 
Ted Nugent, baby. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, awesome. Also, because of where you grew up, do you remember Barnaby's Pizza? I do not remember Barnaby's, no. And uh, you live close to my favorite bagel store off of Mosby and Olive. You ever go to that place? Mosby and Olive. What's the name of it? It's called, like, I think it's called, like, the Bagel Factory. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, right there. Okay. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I've, I've been there many times over the years. Because one of my cool Randy stories was, I don't know, would have been like 96, 97. We were still in that fantasy football league together. Yep. Yeah. And again, this is a, Randy's a cool story. I'm digressing <laughs> a little bit, but I had my uncle, if you, I'm sure you remember my uncle. And mm -hmm. for some reason, the second year we're doing this league thing, we need an extra member. And so we invite him to go ahead and play. And he's very happy to be in a league with Randy Carricker. And he's not shy about calling Randy about obnoxious trades and about his theory <laughs> about the, the beauty of the tight end. And you and Big Frank and Melnick and you, you guys were always very nice. And eh, there's my Randy uh, character is a great guy story. That was a uh, – and the, that league ended just a couple of years ago after the departure of the Rams. And actually, uh, on some level, it still exists. Big Frank and Randy Hugh and I think Jeff Melnick are, are still in that league that started – in 1990, that very first year, we had Mike Kelly, we had Joe Buck, we had uh, myself, um, Jeff Melnick was there. He's worked in St. Louis media for a long time, uh, and it survived for almost 30 years. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> so we mentioned you do go to Lindenwood, and if I read correctly, the main reason for you going there was because Robert Hyland was on the board. <laughs> yeah, that's my story. So, well, to go back, Lindenwood used to have a high school workshop. And my mom set me up to go to this high school workshop in 1978. I was going to graduate in 1980. And Robert Hyland, who was the general manager at KMOX, was also the chairman of the board at Lindenwood. And I naively thought, well, if he is the chairman of the board at Lindenwood and the general manager at KMOX, I'll go there and there's no doubt that I'll get hired. And lo and behold, I did get an internship. And there were only a couple of us at Lindenwood that year that I was uh, an intern my senior year that wound up getting internships. And I was the only one that wound up getting hired from those internships. So I actually, like a lot of my career, was in the right place at the right time with that. I showed up at the right time when a uh, producer uh, decided to move on and got hired. And uh, I just kept climbing the ladder at, at KMOX after getting that internship while I was at Lindenwood. And you led the way for your Greg Anskers and your Bob Ramseys and your Dan McLaughlin's? Well, Rammer was ahead of me. So Rammer was a few years ahead of me at Lindenwood. But uh, Earl Austin Jr. Uh, was at Lindenwood at the same time. Dan came later. Greg Amzinger came later. Scott Warman was there towards the end of my uh, career. So Lindenwood has turned out a lot of really good sportscasters over the years. And I feel fortunate to have been a part of it. Did you see Awesome Hoop? Oh, yeah. He was, well, for a long time until the last couple of years, Earl was the all-time leading scorer at Lindenwood. He was a really good basketball player. And at that time, we didn't have a gym. The Highland gym came after I had graduated. So Lindenwood's men's basketball team played at St. Charles High. And we would go over there and we would broadcast the games. And it wasn't the best setup in the world, but we were in a situation at that time where the general manager of the station, I could go and say, hey, I'd like to broadcast this game. And he'd say, go. Go ahead, do it. Sure, no problem. And so I would grab somebody and we would go broadcast a Lindenwood basketball game and then bring all the equipment back and then they could run their, their country show or their bluegrass show, whatever it was, after we finished up our basketball game. They were very easy. They made, they made it very easy for us to broadcast games and get that necessary experience. And yeah, watching Earl play basketball, man, back in the day, he was something. Life with the modems, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Well. We had so many, we had a, a microwave set up. So I would have to bring a, an antenna into the gym that would go out to a van that would shoot the signal over to Lindenwood. So uh, this was even pre-computer. And uh, we would set up, we, we could also, if we had the ability with a phone line to, to set up via a phone line as well. But normally uh, it was just a little antenna to antenna device that uh, gave us a studio quality and more times than not it worked for us. When did you start at KMOX? My first uh, day was, uh, actually I just uh, had the anniversary as an intern 
It was in May of 1983. It was the day that John Elway got traded by the Baltimore Colts to the Denver Broncos. And the, so I walk in that very first night, and I'm thinking that they'll just ease me in and allow me to observe and see what the, the business is all about. And Lisa Bedian, who was the full-time producer at the time, produced Sports Open Line. And soon after uh, Open Line was over, I'm just sitting in the office, and she comes in and says, hey, the Colts just traded John Elway. And I, wow. And I, I was a big sports fan, so I knew what was going on. And Lisa, here I am, a first-night intern, has me calling uh, people from the Broncos, from the Colts, around the country. And you have to remember, there wasn't sports talk radio. We didn't have all these reporters for ESPN. ESPN was showing Australian rules football. Uh, writers by that time of the night in the Eastern time zone and the Central time zone, they turned in their stories. So KMOX was a monster in that time. And so if we called, people listened, whether it was in Denver or Baltimore or whatever. So I'm talking to NFL general managers and I'm talking to agents that night, my very first night as an intern at KMOX. And the hands-on experience that I was provided by the producers there, starting with Lisa Bedian, is something that really has come in handy during my career. And I've always tried, David, to help out interns or young people when they come into into the building that I am in because of the the help that I got and just the mentorship that I got as an intern when I was in that situation. And I'm sure Ursay really wanted to talk to you that night. Oh yeah, right. Uh, that was uh, Bob Ursay, not Jimmy, the current donor. And uh, yeah, he was one that we didn't get in touch with, but I do believe we got in touch with their general manager. And the Denver people obviously were thrilled, and so we were able to uh, to interview them too. It was a, it was a fun night. And you were at twenty five at the time, give or take. Oh, uh, let's see. I was twenty one. I actually, yeah, I just turned. No, I, I yeah, I was twenty one. And I read your first main gig was producing Open Line with Deerdorf. Is that correct? Right. I was uh, so in eighty three. I was an intern. They hired me during that summer as a part time producer. And then in February of 84, I started as a full-time employee. So I, I started as an intern in May of 83, full-time employee in February of 84. Dan retires at the end of the 83 football season. And so I start off as a full-time producer when Dan is starting as the full-time Sports Open Line host. So uh, we had a chance to work together right from the start of both of our careers. It was, it was pretty awesome. And, and Dan had done shows on KMOX over the years with Jim Hart. And so he was very familiar with what he was doing. And he treated, as a novice, as somebody who was just getting started, he couldn't have treated me any better. And as a loyal listener, I need to thank you for sports flashbacks with Bob Costas. Uh, my sports flashback was with Jack, with Jack Buck. And, uh, and Bob did that for a long time. Uh, that was uh, a great time. We had worked for a company called Olympia Broadcasting, and it was a nationally syndicated show, and I would write these one-minute scripts for a sports flashback. So uh, 1958, Hank Aaron hits a home run for the Milwaukee Braves in the World Series. And so I would do all the research uh, right up to the cut of the play-by-play -play highlight, and then uh, we were wrapped up with it, and it was five days a week, and so Jack and I would go in every month and record about 30 of those things, and I would bang them out, and that was one of the things that really helped me with my sports knowledge is uh, not just in St. Louis, but having that knowledge of all over the country is being able to write things like that, and I did that for several years, and uh, that was a really fun company to work for and got me to learn a lot about every sport in every market. So as we take a step back, one of the things that just speaks volumes about your career is you've always gotten paid. You've never had any periods of time where you were getting paid. And if we're talking 30, 40 years, that is quite the accomplishment. Yeah, it's crazy, David. When you think, going back to February of 84, I have not had a single day where I didn't have a job with a paycheck coming and benefits. And so much of this is being in the right place at the right time. And I worked at KMOX initially from 1984. They laid me off for a month in 1996. And Rod Zimmerman, the general manager, brought me in and could not have been nicer. I felt better after he let me go than I did 
walking into his office and he was telling me that, hey, this has nothing to do with talent. I would love to keep you around. We just can't. Well, 1996, uh, Tim Dorsey got a hold of KTRS. Uh, at that time, it was WIBV in Belleville. And he's taking a lot of KMOX people. And during that month that I was laid off, KMOX loses Jim Holder to WIBV. He goes there and KMOX called me back right after he decided to make the move. And uh, after a, a lot of time and a lot of wrangling, uh, they got me back there. And uh, that was being in the right place at the right time. And by the way, during that month, I had a severance coming. And then in, I stayed at KMOX until 2001. I wanted to go to work for full-time job with Charter Communications, which I could do during the day. Wouldn't have interfered at all with my night job at KMOX. And we were gonna do Chalk Talk and we were gonna do high school uh, games of all sports, college games of all sports. And I wanted to do this and uh, the general manager at that time would replace Rod Zimmerman, uh, wasn't really on board with that idea. And so I got the full-time gig with Charter and I said, you know what, I'll, I'll just do that and maybe I'll find another radio job. And sure enough, as soon as it word leaks that I'm going to charter and leaving KMOX, KTRS calls me. So I literally went right from KMOX to KTRS and charter and was able to do both of those jobs. And then in 2005, after the Cardinals bought KTRS, they fired the entire staff, Bill, Wendy, Jim Holder, McGraw-Millhaven. Uh, and by the way, they brought most of those people back. Me, they got rid of almost everybody that day, in uh, December of 2005 at KTRS. And so I still had my charter gig. I was fine. And I was able to do that. And then after the turn of the year, Dave Green, uh, who you know, was in charge of a little station. And it was e 1380 ESPN at the time, a uh, low wattage AM signal, but Bernie was there. Bernie Miklas was there and they had a really good staff. So uh, I went there. Bernie and I wound up doing an afternoon drive show for a couple of years at 1380. And then while still having the charter job in the summer of 2008, uh, they bring me in. And remember, we had the economy crash and we had tremendous floods in the St. Louis area. I'm out on a golf course with a couple of buddies and I get a call from 1380 and the general manager says, Hey, can you come in and talk to us? I said, sure. And I told my guys, one of two things is going to happen. Either I'm going to be asked to do a Rams pregame show. Cause this is August of 2008 or they're going to let me go. And I get there and they said, the economy is really bad. We have to let you go that night. That's a Friday. I had heard rumors. All of us in the sports industry had that, uh, what was then Bonneville Broadcasting was going to make a switch and change the 101 signal to ESPN. I didn't know John Kioski, the general manager, but I went to the internet and I found him and I emailed him on the Friday night that I got let go. I got let go at maybe two in the afternoon. I email him at eight at night. I get a reply email the next morning. I had asked him, hey, should we talk? Uh, I heard you might be switching to sports. And he said, yeah, we should absolutely talk. We met the next Tuesday and I was hired for a job the next Tuesday. So, and I've been there. Uh, I started working for them in October of 08 and I've been at 101 ESPN ever since. So you had breakfast with John? Yep. Yeah, we What'd went have, to the first watching three sports. Yeah, it was great. And I, I just went with fruit. You know, I didn't want to, I, I didn't even know the guy. It's so, one of those things uh, like, I would then, I do the Wade Boggs thing. I would then eat fruit every morning for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. So, but, but it, it was unbelievable how it worked out. And then amazingly, we start up on the 1st of January in 2009 on the air at 101 ESPN. So we're, we're starting the show and literally a week after we get started on January 8th, Charter does mass layoffs and I'm one of their budget cuts, but I'm fine because I still have 101 ESPN. So 101 ESPN has been my solo gig here for 11 years, but it is amazing to think that I can go all the way back to 1984 and I've had a job in broadcasting in St. Louis every day. Explain to me why Mark Boyle is important to know. Yeah, Mark Boyle is uh, really important because he, he's been the longtime voice of the Indiana Pacers and he's terrific at what he does. And in 1988, he got the offer to become the voice of the Pacers. 
and I was doing overnight sports. I was doing sports casts, and I was doing some fill-in work on open line for KMOX. But when Mark left, I uh, asked for the opportunity to do the pre- and post-game sports open lines on KMOX. And I want to go back a little bit because we had had uh, somebody else leave uh, a year and a half earlier. And uh, we had news people at the Sports Voice of America at KMOX. We had news people doing the sports casts at 10, 11, and midnight. And Mr. Highland was notorious for coming into work really early, like midnight, and leaving at four in the afternoon. Well, I wasn't getting out after preparing and leaving everything for the morning sports. I wasn't getting out of there till 1.30. So I, I'm listening to these fine newscasters doing sports, but we're the sports voice of America. So one night I go into Mr. Highland's office and I said, Mr. Highland, we are the sports voice of America, but we've got news guys doing our sports casts. I said, I'm a real sportscaster. I should be able to do those. I can do a great job for you. He said, Give me a tape. So uh, I provided him a tape the next day. Jack Buck comes in, and I had developed a great relationship with Jack by that time. And he said, what's going on? And I told him that uh, I wanted to do the nighttime sportscasts, that uh, I thought a, new, a sports guy should be doing it. And he said, did you talk to the boss? And I said, yeah, I gave him a tape. He said, I'll be right back. And Jack went into Mr. Highland and said, what do you think of those nighttime sportscasts? And Mr. Highland said, well, uh, Randy Carricker just gave me a, a tape. I'm going to listen to it. And Jack said, let the kid do it. And he didn't even have to listen to the tape. Once Jack said it, it was gold for Mr. Highland. So that's how I started doing nighttime sportscasts. Mark Boyle leaves about a year and a half later, uh, right as the baseball season is uh, in, in, its, in full swing. And Jack comes in the next day, and I had done some sports open lines as fill-ins, and he says, what's going on? And I said, yeah, did you know Mark Boyle left? He said, yeah, hold on a minute. Uh, let me be go meet with Highland. I didn't even have to ask him. And uh, so he goes in and says, what's going on with those post-game open lines? And Mr. Highland says, I don't know yet. And Jack says, let the kid do it. So that, that the kid was me. So that's how I wound up doing that. And ultimately later I got a chance to do some Cardinal baseball because of Jack Buck. And so Mark Boyle leaving precipitated my getting into full-time talk radio. And for people who don't know, shame on you, Robert Highland is like the architect of talk radio. Yep. Did yeah, you back realize the at that time you were in the you were in the middle of something that was historic? Uh, I no, I, I didn't appreciate it enough. I knew that we were an iconic radio station, and I, I knew that what we did was great. But I didn't realize that we were a national treasure. Uh, we had. Heck, we, we had eight or ten full-time sports people. And when you think about it, if you go back to the 70s when the football Cardinals were here, Bob Starr had left by the time I got to KMOX. But I think Bob Starr might have been the best radio play-by-play -play, uh, football guy I've ever heard. Dan Kelly, definitely the best hockey play-by-play -play guy ever. Jack Buck, the best in baseball. And he, he might have been as good at football as he was at baseball. And then Bob Costas winds up doing – the NBA championship for years on national TV. So you probably at one time had the four best guys in the four major sports in America that were working for that station. In addition to sensational people like Bill Wilkerson and Jim Holder and Nancy Drew, who I absolutely adore. And then they took care of their younger people too. And they allowed their younger people to make a living. And one of the things that was great about KMOX and actually still is, and we tried to do it at 101 ESPN, is that they developed and gave their young people an opportunity. Mike Kelly wanted to do college football and basketball, and he got that start at, uh, at KMOX. They allowed me to grow into becoming their, their lead sports open line guy. They allowed Wendy Weiss to move in and wind up becoming an elite morning anchor on the radio. So uh, that part of it was cool, is that Mr. Highland really did want young people to succeed. Give me a cool Joel Bushbaum story. <laughs> Joel was the most knowledgeable college football draft guy ever. And all due respect to Todd McShay and Mel Kuyper and all those guys, but Joel was the original. And I, I've got two stories. Number one, back in 1986, I'm doing an open line with 
with Joel, and, and we did it every week during the, the season. And some of Steve Savard's buddies called in and said, hey, what do you think of this guy, uh, Steve Savard from Missouri Western? And Joel has a scouting report. You know, he's got the size, he's got the speed, he's got the tendencies. He knows everything about Seve, which was incredible. I, did, I had gone to Parkway North, and I didn't know about Steve Savard, but Joel Bushbaum did. And a couple of St. Louis guys call in trying to catch Joel, and he nails it. Uh, he also knew before any of us about Neil Lomax, who wound up becoming a Pro Bowl quarterback for the Cardinals. He knew about him at Portland State and uh, how great he was. But my favorite Joel is he got a call one time about Curtis Dickey of the Baltimore Colts, who had had some run-ins with the law. And, uh, he, he was not the sharpest pencil in the box, but he could run something like a 4-2-9-40. And Joel says, he's got good size. He's got good speed. Unfortunately, he's not quite as swift upstairs as he is downstairs. And he had this great, thick New York accent, and he couldn't have been a more fun and pleasant guy. And normally people wouldn't associate the word fun with Joel Bushbaum, but he had an incredible dry wit about him. And he was just the consummate pro when we would do our shows. And he was the guy. He was the only national NFL draft expert at that time. And we had him on every week at KMOX. Do you remember the first Cardinal game you attended with a press pass? That would have been in 1983. And it was actually, it was against the Expos. And the reason I remember it is not for that game, which was apparently forgettable. But the next night, Bob Forsh threw his second no-hitter. And I was back at the station for that, wishing that I would have been at the ballpark that night rather than the night before. But it was, yes, uh, September of 83 against the Expos. All right, based on that, give me your best Jack Herman story. Uh, Jack was uh, the beat writer for the Cardinals. He was a, a terrific official scorer for the Cardinals and just exceptionally knowledgeable and could tell you about old-time Cardinals. And that one of the most valuable things that I had in the time that I was covering the Cardinals on a daily basis is that I had people that really knew what they were talking about. Rick Hummel at the Post, Jack Herman at the Globe, plus Bob Burns and Bob Bragg. And one of the things that uh, Jack was a, a tall, thin guy, but as the official score, you'd go down and say, is that right? And he knew every single rule. And uh, he, if there was an error, I'll, I'll tell you this. We complain a lot about official scoring these days in Major League Baseball. I don't recall ever complaining about Jack Herman making a mistake. I would ask him questions about rules, and he knew every single rule. But I don't remember complaining to him about calls like guys get complained to today. One of the nicest people I ever knew was Ernie Hayes. He was great. And Ernie and I had a fantastic relationship. He had a joke for everybody. And he would be strolling on into his booth where he would play the organ. And he always had a, a funny, sometimes off-color joke for you. But you're right. You couldn't have met a nicer guy. And uh, actually, he lived pretty close to me. We always wound up at the same quick trip in Maryland Heights. And he, uh, he was exceptionally talented. We always had that trivia question during the late 70s and the early 80s. Who was the only guy to play for the Blues, the football Cardinals, and the baseball Cardinals? And, of course, it was Ernie Hayes playing the organ for all three. But, uh, yeah, he, you talk about just a, a fun, gregarious, genial guy. He is really missed. Now, do, Randy, do I remember, and I think I do, and this is another Randy's awesome story. You're at CamoX, you're established, but you're still taking the tape deck and a microphone and sitting in the back row and practicing your play-by-play. -play. Do I remember that right? Yeah, that was my goal. So I would either go into that back row or I would go into the uh, the booth next to the CamoX booth, which because not every game was televised at that time, that was the TV booth. And I would go in there and practice my play-by-play. -play. And then I would have uh, Jack Buck review it and give me tips and uh, give me ideas and, and things like that. And I really, at one point, wanted to do uh, minor league baseball and, and work my way up to the major leagues. And I sent a lot of tapes out and was never able to get to hook anybody to, to hire me. And what happened was, in those younger days, uh, I wasn't making a ton of money at KMOX. And our newsroom... Uh, when Union, we we became an after house, and all of a sudden, the kid making 
$3.50 an hour is making $40,000 a year. And because of that, I couldn't have gone back to a $10,000 a year play-by-play job. It just wouldn't have made sense for me for me to do that. And uh, so that was one of the things that brought me back to KMOX in 1986 was Jack was familiar with my work. And I, I think he uh, presented it to Mr. Highland. And at that time, Joe Buck was doing weekends on Fox. And when Joe wasn't there and Jack wasn't doing road games, they, they set me up to do the road games on uh, on the Cardinal Baseball Network when Joe wasn't there on the weekends. And that was fun. And that was obviously thanks to Jack. But that was my goal. My, my original goal coming out of high school was to be, become the, the radio voice of the Cardinals. And I, I got close, but it never really came to fruition. Well, obviously, you've done more than your fair share. So jealous talking to you about work with Jack, but not to put you on a spot, but I vaguely remember a story about how Zimmerman was in charge and he calls Buck into his office to try to lay the land on Jack being a team player or understanding what the situation is. Is this story ringing a bell at all? Yes. And uh, I, I think I'm trying to think of the word. Uh, since we're on the internet, yeah, I can do this. So Rod brings Jack into his office. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he asked Jack to take a pay cut. And this was early on in Rod's career. And uh, he, he said to Rod, you know what I do here? And he said, yeah, I, I know what you do. You do the Cardinals here on the air. He said, no, I mean here in St. Louis. And Rod said, well, no, not really. And Jack said, well, I'm out in about 200 days a year. I'm an ambassador for you. I'm an ambassador for you with CBS Radio, too. I'm worth what you're paying me, and I'm not going to take a pay cut. And Rod said, you're being pretty cavalier here. And Jack said, does being cavalier mean I don't give a shit? And Rod <laughs> said, yeah. And Jack said, then I'm being cavalier. So, yeah, that, that one happened. And it, here's how much I adored Jack Buck. And I, this tells me everything I need to know about how he felt about me because of that story. Uh, Valentine's Day of 1996, when I was uh, laid off that initial time, Jack actually went into Rod's office and offered to take a pay cut at that time. And then he called me later that night and said, hey, these are bad days. I, I didn't want this to happen to you. I went in and offered to take a pay cut. And uh, that's the nicest thing that anybody could have ever done for me. And that's how much he was on my side. And uh, that's that, that's why I'm here talking to you and not doing a job at a bank or, uh, you know, having to, to run gas stations uh, is because I had Jack Buck as a guy that was behind me all the way. So Valentine's Day, 96, everybody gets laid off. Do you still have the voice messages from Deardorff and Costas? No, I don't. That was, in a, uh, that was an old answering machine, and we don't even have that answering machine anymore. But it's funny because I, I think all of us are self-critical and insecure in some way with whatever we do. And I certainly was at that time. And the morning after I got laid off, I, w I went out somewhere. And I get home, and there are back-to-back -back messages on my answering machine, one from Dan Deardorff and one from Bob Costas. And both of them say pretty much the same thing. It was, uh, hey, Randy, this has nothing to do with talent. You're a talented guy. You're one of the best guys in the country. and you're going to be fine. You're going to get a job in another place. If you need anything at all, give me a call. Both Bob and Dan said that. And I thought, man, that's pretty cool that those two national guys, here's uh, Dan has been the, the analyst on Monday Night Football for a decade, and Bob is the voice of NBC Sports. And I made enough of an impression on these guys, and they're nice enough to call and leave messages like that. And that is something that I'll never forget. And then when I went back a month later <clears throat> and I had agreed to take a job at uh, what was then KSD AM, it became KTRS, but it was the 550 signal. And I was going to go over there and do their quote unquote open line show. And uh, Jim Holder, I mentioned that earlier, left the Friday night before I was supposed to start on a Monday. And, uh, or no, he left on the Thursday because on Friday morning, 
Thursday night, I get a call from Tom Langmeyer, the program director, and uh, he says, hey, Randy, we'd love to have you back. And I said, well, I've already committed to do this job at 550. I really appreciate it, but I'm sorry I can't come back. And I get a call the next morning from Rod, and we wound up negotiating a really good deal to bring me back. But during that whole ordeal, that Friday morning, I'll never forget, I called both Dan and Bob and said, what should I do? And Dan said, look, there's nothing like KMOX. I'll do respect to other stations. There's nothing like being at KMOX in our country. And he was right about that. And then I, I called Bob and Bob said, look, if you can get them to guarantee a contract and they'll look you in the eye and guarantee you your next deal, you should go there because there are very few guarantees in our business. And so those were a couple of things I took to heart, the importance of being at KMOX and the, uh, the, the fact that they had laid me off a month earlier. So uh, Rod did give me that, that guaranteed deal and a lot of perks, and it wound up working out for me very well, in large part because of those two guys. You're 34 at the time. Are you married? Yeah, I got married in 1986. So yeah, I had been married for a decade at that point. And uh, so that, and that was one of the good things about it too, is that uh, my wife was employed and uh, she's an attorney and was, was doing really well. So I, I, I could have taken my time if I needed to, but it goes back to me being in the right place at the right time. And I've, Jim Holderberry could have easily left the uh, the next Monday rather than the Thursday night before I was supposed to start at that station. But he left on a Thursday night and that allowed us to go through a Friday and negotiate. And then I think one of the reasons that uh, I wound up leaving KOX and they didn't want me to do both jobs in 2001 because when Rod left our station, he went to Chicago in 1998, the same general manager that I was going to go to work for, Karen Carroll, and I, and I tried like heck to try to find somebody from that company to say, look, I'm not going to be able to start for you on Monday morning. And I couldn't find them on that Friday or on the weekend. But I think that they were always a little bit offended that I didn't come to work for them because I got an amazing deal from from uh, Rod Zimmerman and, and CBS and KMOX. How'd you meet your wife? Uh, we were both ushers at Bush Stadium and at, uh, at the arena. So uh, yeah, that was back in the early 80s. Uh, uh, that was a job that I started out of high school. And so we met there, we met working concerts and hockey games and baseball games. And uh, that thing just kind of grew over the course of time. How did you propose? You know, it was always just kind of a given. Uh, I, I didn't really propose. It was, it was just kind of, we both kind of determined at some point very early on in our relationship that we were going to get married. And I think we, we kind of decided on a date rather than me proposing. We just said, uh, you know, when you get out of law school and when I'm a little bit more established, uh, we'll, we'll get married. And so we kind of put our eye on November 1st of 1986 and that wound up being the date. All right. So anybody that knows Randy Carricker knows it is now time to talk about the Rams. <laughs> and Rams come to town 95. I don't know if we've ever talked about this. I'll do this very quickly. Here's my theory. I think Stan Kroenke has 10 lawyers in a room all making 200000 And before he ever signs anything, they've gone through three months worth of research on how's it work with Carol and how do you get out of the contract and what's the legal ramifications and how long will we have to stay? I really feel, and kind of did at the time, but really do now, and I, I've been out of the business forever, man, but I don't think he gives them a dime until his lawyers have mapped this out and foresaw 15, 20 years later that he could do what he did. Stupid? What do you think? Well, I don't think it's stupid, but I think we also have to note that he was all in on being the owner of the expansion franchise for St. Louis in 1993. He had been pursued by Civic Progress when it became clear that Jerry Clinton didn't have enough cash to own that expansion franchise. So when they went to that final meeting, actually the final couple of meetings in 1993 to be an expansion city, Stan Kroenke was in there as the potential St. Louis owner. And he actually got approved as an owner at that time. When uh, the Rams came here, it was really at the behest of 
Tom Eagleton that all of those deals were made with the, the lease situation. And what happened was the Civic Progress guys had backed Jerry Clinton in building the dome, which was going to cost $350 million. So they go to their constituents and they get Jack Buck to do spots in the county and they get the county to approve a vote to build the dome with the assumption that they're going to get an expansion team. And then they can't work a deal once the the dome is being built, but they can't work a deal with the NFL owners to get an expansion team. I'm convinced to this day that the civic progress guys thought they were more powerful than the NFL guys and thought, oh, well, we'll get a team. We're St. Louis. We're civic progress. Well, there's no doubt that we'll get a team. Well, the NFL at that time didn't want to be involved in litigation because Jerry Clinton owned the lease to the dome. It was worth $900 billion, $30 million a year for 30 years. And that's how he wanted to finance the team. The league said, no, you have to have cash in hand. So the Civic Progress guys go get Kroenke and they can't get the lease from Jerry. And so we don't get the expansion team. We don't have a team at all, but we've got this expensive stadium bill going up. So the Civic Progress guys get Freeman Bosley, the mayor of the city at the time, Buzz Westfall, who was the county executive, and Dick Gephardt, who was a famous congressman from South St. Louis. They get those three guys to form Fans Inc., which is a vehicle to try to get a franchise here to St. Louis. And the only logical franchise to move at that time was the Rams, because they weren't getting a stadium from California. California still, to this day, hasn't built a stadium with public funds, and they weren't going to build one for the Rams. So they enlist Tom Eagleton, retired senator, and said, hey, we need to get a team. We don't have want to have a white elephant uh, dome here with no team in it. We'll look really bad if we have a dome that our public is paying for, but we don't have a team in it. And they, Tom Eagleton says, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, whatever it takes. And so John Shaw, who was very slick, uh, was negotiating with Eagleton, and he was the one that asked for the lease provision that allowed the that forced the dome to be in the top tier of stadiums at the end of ten years, at the end of twenty years. Well, Georgia was still alive at the ten year spot, so she forced John Shaw to accept the upgrades that were offered by the CVC. So the Rams did after 10 years, but then they set the new date for 2015 to open up the lease again if the stadium wasn't up in the top tier. Well, there's two things. Number one, the C Civic uh, CVC, the uh, Visitors Commission, uh, they aren't a, a tax-making entity. They don't have a ton of money. And in the interim, between the time the Rams started play at the Dome in 1996, and by the time we got to the stadium having to be upgraded, 29 of the other 32 teams had either built new stadiums or upgrades, in large part because of the Dome. And once we got to that point, there's no way the CVC could afford to upgrade the stadium and get it into the top 25%, that top quartile of stadiums in the NFL. But I do think that Kroenke look, took a look at the lay of the land especially when Georgia died in 08, knew that he had the right of first refusal on any sale that the Rosenblum family would act upon. And he knew that that big market could get him a lot of money. And so I'm convinced on the day that he took control of the team in 2010, it was gone to LA. But I don't think it was when they came here in 1995. And wasn't there something about, in retrospect, if you knew the law and you knew everything that was going on, that the kids were not going to be able to afford the estate tax when their mom yeah, died. Georgia, yeah, Georgia did not do a good job of setting her kids up to inherit her fortune and the team. Ironically, Al Davis did, and Mark Davis is able to do with the Raiders what he's done. George Steinbrenner, I think the timing was good for his kids to take over. But in terms of the timing of the estate tax and the way that the estate was set up, Georgia did not do her kids any favors because they didn't have the cash to pay the taxes on the inheritance of an NFL team. And part of that was that when the team moved here, it was worth maybe $100 million. And by the time those kids took over, it was worth almost a billion. 
and they never had that much cash. And she never went back to the lawyers and said, look, I need to set this up so that my estate can be passed on to Chip and Lucia. So everybody, greatest show on turf. It was great. It was great while it lasted. Tampa Bay Buccaneers coming to town. Everybody remembers the Ricky Pro catch. What they don't remember is that you personally were responsible for Jerry by intercepting Sean K. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll take responsibility for that. I had my whole family up in our seats, 414, row HH, seats 9, 10, 11, and 12. And so I've got uh, my wife and my mom. I guess it was my, my wife and my sister and my son, Patrick, uh, and my mom were up there they, watching the game. My dad was uh, not feeling well. He was at home. So we are, uh, the, we the Rams, are losing 6-5 in the fourth quarter. Uh, early in the fourth quarter, and I am down in the auxiliary press box in the end zone. And we reach a, a commercial break, and I said, you know what, i got to get back up to my lucky seat. And I get up to uh, Section 414, go up, and I'm with the family, and no sooner do I sit down than Sean King throws that interception to Dre Bly. And then moments after that, with 444 left, Kurt Warner hits Ricky Prohl, in the left end zone for the touchdown to give the Rams a victory. I'm convinced to this day, Dave, that if I don't make that move from the auxiliary press box up to the upper deck section 414, I don't think the Rams win that game. I'm 100% behind you. That's why I brought it up. Document. <laughs> Any guy nicer and more well-deserving than Kurt Warner? No, he's one of my favorite all-time athletes. And uh, he, what he's done for our community since leaving here after the 2003 season is amazing. There are athletes in our town, big name athletes, that don't do as much as Kurt Warner does 17 years after he left St. Louis. He's just a remarkable human being. He's somebody that I think we should all aspire to be to. And uh, it, it is so great that he was able to develop a platform and do all those things because he uses that platform as a two-time MVP, as a Super Bowl MVP is a three-time Super Bowl quarterback for good. He, he wants people to lead better lives, and he's just so honest about it and so forthright about it. And, no, I can't imagine a, a better guy to have uh, be in the situation that he was put in here in St. Louis. It was a perfect storm. So in early 2009, the trend in radio at the time is to take strong FM signals and do all sports radio. That was very, not unprecedented, but it was just, I was just starting to get vogue because talk used to be just AMs and now Major League Baseball and teams were going on the FM signals and Hubbard at the time was Bonneville, gets into the fray. You are one of, I think you're the first one that signs up. I'm gonna make a joke here. You start a program called The Fast Lane with Bob Ramsey. The show should not have been called Bob Ramsey, it should not have been called Fast Lane. It should have been the two nicest guys in sports media with an ex-ram and an annoying ego. <laughs> well, number one, DeMarco does not have any ego at all. He's, DeMarco's as nice a guy as you could ever meet, and uh, he, he's a great guy. Rammer and I had been doing shows in the Bush Stadium press box for 25 years, and we'd always wanted to work together. And Bob was actually, we started FM talk radio together. He started talk radio in St. Louis uh, with uh, – I think the station was KGLD, K-Gold, and it flipped to sports. And he was one of the very first voices on sports talk radio in St. Louis. So, yeah, after uh, I get – I actually was given a lot of leeway and they, a lot of trust in helping build the station. And John Kioski asked me who I would like to work with. And uh, so I gave him a list of five names. And two of the names on of my five were Bob Ramsey and uh, – and DeMarco Farr. And they said, well, can you get in touch with DeMarco? I said, yeah. So I called him. He's driving, uh, I think, down the five in L.A. And uh, I asked him if he would like to come back to St. Louis and do talk radio. He wasn't doing anything at the time. He said, I'd love to do that. And we would dominate. And uh, so he came back. And then we got Rammer uh, right at the last minute. But he was doing Billiken Basketball, which was the first play-by-play -play product that we had. And so on January 1st of 09, from Pujols 5 at Westport, uh, we had our first day of broadcasting. Right from the start, an immediate success. Did you sense that? 
yeah, our chemistry was great right off the bat. The station was really good right off the bat. Jason Barrett was our program director. Uh, we got the Rams right away, which was a huge key at that time because uh, people still were invested in the Rams. So having a property, a professional property play-by-play -play was a big thing. Having the four letters of ESPN was a big thing. Uh, we ran Mike and Mike in the morning, and then we ran a best of Mike and Mike hour from 9 to 10. And then Pat per Paris and Bur Brian Burwell uh, were Par Paris and Burwell were our second show, and they were on from 10 to 2, and then we were on from 2 to 6. And you could just feel a different vibe from being in AM for my entire career. Being on the FM dial provides a different vibe. It's just, it's a younger demographic, and you can feel that younger demographic. But then the fact that we were starting something completely new made a difference for me, too. So it was inv invigorating, and we could feel it right away, absolutely. Things are going well. Unfortunately, we get to 2012 and you got a little heart thing. You got a quadruple bypass. You know, quadruple bypass, that's a lot of druples, Randy. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, in uh, Christmas of 2010, I had had a stent put in. I was going in to do a Rams pregame show, walking into the dome, and I had a shortness of breath. And I had to sit down on one of the benches outside the dome before I before I walked in. And uh, so I went to my doctor that week and he said, let's do a stress test. So I go in and I do the stress test. This is like uh, December 23rd and something goes bad. I don't feel it going bad, but something go goes bad. And by the way, I had, I had felt like a clicking in my heart for six months. If you ever feel anything in your heart, go to the doctor. Uh, but then the shortness of breath is what alarmed me. I thought maybe the, the clicking in the heart was something to do with caffeine or soda or something like that. So uh, when I'm doing the stress test, a button gets pushed, and it was almost like an FBI raid. In a, a matter of seconds, there were 20 people in the room taking care of me, and they literally took me across the street. I was at St. Luke's at the outpatient center. They take me across the street uh, in an ambulance and get me in and I, I get a stent put in, and I come home the next day. Uh, fast forward two years later, I am uh, working out and uh, on the treadmill, and I just feel a burning sensation in my heart. And so I went back to my doctor because I was always, from that point on, concerned about it. And uh, we're going to the Super Bowl the next week. I, I said, what do you think? He said, well, why don't you just go to the Super Bowl, take it easy, and then when you get back, we'll do a stress test, and we'll see how you are. I said, okay. I blow through the stress test after coming back from India in the Super Bowl, but they see an irregularity. They don't like it. And my doctor thinks he can put another stent in, but it winds up being that my blockage is right there in the widow maker and it's a bad spot. It's right there. If you have two arteries coming out, you've got one that feeds these two arteries and my blockage was right there. And he said, I can't put a stent in there. I need to do a bypass. So I said, okay, fine. Uh, and I really didn't think that much of it. And, it's, it felt like such a routine surgery. I remember Bob Bragg having one and telling me that the human heart is, according to his doctors, it's an imperfect organ, and everybody would be better off with a bypass. So it's I thought, like a Tommy John. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and it was so easy to come back from that stent two years earlier. I, I was back at work the next day. It was no big deal. So I, I undergo uh, the bypass, and I, you know, it's interesting because that was 2012. Last year, I asked my kids, did I warn you kids or tell you that I was going to be fine? And they, I, I didn't. And they were, uh, let's see, Patrick at that time was, they, they were both, Patrick was in high school. I guess Katie was in middle school. Yeah, Patrick was a senior in high school. And uh, so Katie must have been finishing up eighth grade. And I had not told them, look, don't worry about it. This is, I'm, I'm going to be fine. So they go to school that day, scared to death that they're never going to see their dad again. I feel really bad about that. Uh, and so the surgery was successful. And I remember Dave coming home and thinking, okay, well, this is me. I'm a tough guy. And look what happened with the stent. And they're warning me, no, this is completely different. This is a really serious invasive surgery that we did. They've broken my sternum. They still did that at the time. And the first thing I did when I got home was went to the steps and tried to walk up the steps. And man, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Boom. And I had to stop and walk back down the steps. But I remember in 2012, uh, Alan Craig had uh, hurt his knee late in the season for the Cardinals. And so my goal was to be back 
before Alan Craig got back for the Cardinals. And I wound up missing, I, I still remember, 17 days of work. I came back for the first day of that NCAA tournament when Norfolk State beat Mizzou. And uh, I don't think Alan Craig ever really came back as effective as he had been the year before. No more late nights at Denny's with Hadley. None of those, no, and no more late night Taco Bell either. That's right. That that was a big part of my life, and you you don't realize how much weight you can gain when you're eating late at night and then going right to bed. So I think, Randy, that you changed on air after you came back, and I've got a reason why I think that. But before I give you my reason, do you agree or disagree that when you came back, you were different on air? I never thought of it. What what's your theory? So I have two theories. One is. I think that while you were quarantined with nothing to do, you just got every book out that you had and just engulfed and read and read and read. And when you got back on the air, you were just a wealth of information. Four o'clock fight, as an example. Secondly, I think that this is me. This is not you. Okay. No longer not acting like I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm just going to be who I am now. And I know these things, and I'm not going to be embarrassed that I know these things, and I'm just going to be who I am. I think that's more of a product of the 4 o'clock fight. And the 4 o'clock fight, I think, started, it probably was right around that time. Our program director, Kent Sterling, liked that idea and knew that I knew a lot. And I've known a lot since I was a little kid. And I think what happened was, is Dunk came up with the term Megamind. And uh, those guys had fun with my knowledge. With Chris Duncan replaced Rammer on the show, and Chris and Demarco, who were athletes, and uh, it wasn't their job to know a ton about sports. The, so they had a reverence for what I knew. I, I think that was probably it, as much as me having the heart procedure. It was just that th those guys made a big deal of it, and they lifted my ego. In that regard, I did read some books while I was out, but it wasn't enough to change my sports knowledge. I uh, actually, Frank Cusimano visited me in the hospital and gave me a couple of really good books. One about Howard Cosell that I still have, and uh, so yeah, I, I did a lot of reading, but it wasn't anything that made me more knowledgeable from a broad-based perspective. So we're down with Randy Carricker. We're going to talk a little bit about the Blues before the, we wrap this up. But you mentioned Chris Duncan. Obviously, uh, can we talk about the T-shirts and how people can get those? Yeah, they can still get them at uh, 101ESPN.com. It's the Dunctionary T-shirt. And Dunk, uh, bless his heart and rest in peace, had so many different words that he would use that we didn't know. So like a home run could be a Jackerton or a Boomski or one that was hit to the opposite field could be an Apo Taco. Or you could have some uh, uh, man sodas, which were also known as freshies, which is, is beer. He had an incredible array of phrases that he used all the time. And that was part of his charm. It was the dugout speak that he had picked up over the course of his entire life because his dad was always in those dugouts and in those clubhouses and took Chris and his brother Shelly with him. Uh, the, the number of phrases that he had was amazing, and people can still get the T-shirts at 101ESPN.com. So we're going to wrap this up, talk a little bit about the Blues, finally won a Stanley Cup. I reported on the Blues for a couple of years, but I was never a big hockey guy. Correct me if I'm wrong. Do they have more Stanley Cups won by former players on different teams than any other team in history? It's got to be close. They had a stretch, I think it was 18 out of 19 years, where every Stanley Cup champion either had a Stanley Cup, a former Blue or a former Blues coach uh, that was with their team. It was an incredible run. And I would think there's probably original six teams that have more of their former players that have won Cups. But probably since the, since the Blues lost Scott Stevens in 1991, I would think in that time the Blues probably have more former players that have won cups than anybody. And in the late 80s, early 90s, middle 90s, they always had to make that late season trade. They'd be going great. They'd have team chemistry, and they always needed to blow it up before they got to the playoffs. Yeah, the, the real cruncher was that 90-91 season where they had the best record in the league. And they were looking for 
a, a tough, gritty defenseman. And they could have had Ulf Samuelson from Pittsburgh, but uh, Ron Caron wanted to go get his number two center. And uh, so they made the deal. They traded their, their second line, Cliff Ronning, Sergio Momesso, and Jeff Cortinal, along with defenseman Robert Dirk. They traded him to Vancouver for Garth Butcher and Dan Quinn, and that one just didn't work out. And uh, th there were always, you're right, there was always a trade at the deadline because the Blues felt like they were one piece away from winning a Stanley Cup. And ironically, in one of the years that they don't make that move is when they finally do win a Stanley Cup. So what people love about Randy Carricker in St. Louis is you wear your emotions on your sleeve, you're an announcer, you're still buying PSL tickets, you're really kind of the first guy in the market who criticizes the Cardinals because that's what a fan does. What did it mean to you to have the Blues finally get the Cup? That was huge. I uh, Obviously, I've been a fan all my life. And I, I have experienced the heartbreak that so many other Blues fans have. And we talked about it last week on the show. And uh, just to make refresh my memory, I started just putting down the things that made the Blues cursed. And I wound up with two pages of stuff. But uh, for them to finally win was literally something that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. And for that team, which was, as we all know, uh, I had the fewest points at, at the beginning of January, for that particular team to come together and win, it was probably the most unlikely thing. And a lot of people in that organization over the years, Dave, have said, man, if we only just had a goalie one time, and that's what it took, isn't it? Jordan Bennington is on the scene, and he's a goalie that is just a brick wall when you need him to be. And he was sensational. And obviously the trade for Ryan O'Reilly, who wins the Conn Smythe Trophy, is a huge part of what they do. Uh, it, it was awesome. And the parade was one of my favorite events that I've ever been at. The interaction between the players coming off, the, you know, they weren't just sitting on that boat. They'd come in off their motorcycles. You got Binghamton dancing with the fans, bringing the pom-poms out. Uh, I don't, do you think we'll ever be able to do that again without a vaccine? No, I don't think so. And ironically, it's probably the first time that there's been that sort of interaction between a team and its fans. You know, the, the New England teams are always up on those giant duck boats and can't get down to the players. But having the play or down to the fans, I mean, having the players be down there at ground level, walking the street and walking the parade route and allowing fans, young and old, to touch, touch the Stanley Cup, that's probably something that we will never see again. Last question. Does the wife think the tattoo's sexy? No, she hates it. And <laughs> she, she hated it the, the day that it was brought up. And actually, ironically, as I work with Michelle Smallman on the air now, this is something that was her idea when she was producing the Fast Lane back in 2012. And she said, Randy, if the Blues win the Stanley Cup, you should get a tattoo. And I said, no. And she said, yeah. And then I thought, well, they're never going to win the Stanley Cup. So if they do... Sure, yeah, I'll get it, thinking that they would never win. Lo and behold, they did. And when we went to the parade and Michelle and I worked it together, I would say 50% of the people that I ran into said, hey, Randy, what's up with the tat? What's up with the tat? So about 10 days after the Blues had uh, finished off Boston in the Stanley Cup Finals, I wound up getting a tattoo on my back left shoulder. And it's there, and it's there forever. <laughs> Randy, you're one of the best, man. Thanks for the time. Hope you had a good time. Hey, it's great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Good, best of luck with Overtime with Oliver. And uh, I know this is going to be huge. You, you do great work and keep it up. Well, that was nice, yeah? Hey, it, that was fun. And there's another one for the books. Want to thank Randy for his time. Really enjoyed the episode. Hopefully you did as well. If you wouldn't mind, wherever you listen to your podcast, if you could click on that little subscribe button, that'd be great. One of our review, knock yourself out. If you also want to see Randy's St. Louis 7, that's where I ask him seven questions only St. Louisans would know. You can check that out on YouTube. Our YouTube channel is OT with Oliver. It's going to be it as we do. Thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.